Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Romy and Dan's High School Reunion Podcast brought to you by PV Electronics. Uh, Was that Peevany? I think, yeah, I said it, I said it incorrectly. PV Electronics, apologies, PV. Um, Romes, how are you today? I'm not, I'm... Uh, You're blah. not? Yeah. That's how I am. <laughs> anyway, but very, 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 very excited yep. to have my friend Peter Nelson on. And, um, you know, Peter, you were actually, when Dan and I had decided to do the podcast, you were actually the first name on the list. I said Peter Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. It just great. took me a while to ask you because I know you're so busy. Um, because Peter is a very busy guy. <laughs> How are you, man? I'm very well. Well, thank you for coming busy. on the show. I appreciate it. Um, a lot yeah, of fun. Yeah, so you're a busy man, busy man. Like, tell us a little bit, a uh, little bit about uh, yourself. Uh, yeah, yourself, where you come from, and you know. Well, that's sort of fun stuff. Well, I was born and raised in Los Angeles. My father was born and raised in Los Angeles. My, he was an insurance broker, and my <laughs> mother was a community activist. And I went to school as a biology major, dropped out. And my first job after dropping out, although I did finish college later at UCLA, uh, got a degree in poli sci. One of my first jobs after leaving UC Davis as a biology major was working for Roger Corman as a PA. Really? On um, a movie called Battle Beyond the Stars that my my soon-to-become brother-in-law did the score for. That was James Horner. <laughs> oh. And then I, and then I did <laughs> – okay. then I did – I was a PA on Escape from New York. And oh, um, I think James Cameron was an art director on that and the Skotech brothers did the visual effects. And my sister handled – uh, I think she was an assistant POC, and this is this is 1979. <laughs> so yeah. you were just you just jumped right in. Well, kind of. My sister yeah. helped me get a job. It just happened to be in the film business. I it, Roger Corman had bought a piece of property in Venice, and uh, had turned it into a studio. And yeah. one of the first jobs I did for that, um, Marianne Fisher was his production manager, and ran the studio. And uh, this the the property itself was surrounded by a chain link fence, and they needed to me to hang up hang canvas on all that fence <laughs> i thought you were going to say you had to like stand out there and be the security guard and <laughs> well they might have it was a it was a it was a tight operation <laughs> that sounds awesome were you now i met you as when you were senior vice president at sony but you were actually an actor first and that really fascinated me because you went from being, you know, I don't know if you were a struggling actor. No, I think you were working. You actually were working as an actor more than like 90% of the people in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And yet you chose to go another route. Uh, I did. Well, what happened was it was really interesting because I started when I was working for Roger Corman, I got into this acting class my mother turned me on to. This is in my early 20s, which is this sort of weird acting class called self-expression through voice and acting taught down in in, in Ocean Park. Yeah. And um, it was a really weird class, but it was fun. And I stayed. It was kind of off the wall. I stayed because there was a really cute girl in it that I had a crush on. And she ended up leaving. It's, that's always the reason. Yeah, it's always go. the reason. That's a good there's incentive. A, there's a cute guy, cute girl. Yep, she ended up staying. Uh, she ended up leaving the class and I ended up staying. And w w what that class really focused on, besides some of the other like Feldenkrais and Alexander work that was done in that class, was uh, cold reading. Ah. And the first audition that I ever had was a, a movie that my best friend and his cousin auditioned for. But because they didn't include me in it, I felt left out and submitted my photo. And I ended up getting an audition and I ended up getting the lead role in this movie. It was the first audition I ever had. Oh. And that movie was called oh. Purple Haze. 
And it ended up winning Sundance, what became oh, Sundance in 1983. At that point, it was the USA Film Festival, but we referred to it as like the incipient Sundance because Bob Redford was on the board. And it won Sundance. And the interesting, yeah. yeah, the interesting thing. Well, that's that was that was how the producers of the movie referred to him. I guess they knew him. So Robert yeah. Redford was on the board to use the correct sort of uh, deferential use of his name. <laughs> um, and uh, the thing about it was is that I could be great as an actor, but I didn't have technique. So I, I, there were scenes in that movie that I'm really not very good in it. And then there's other scenes where I'm really quite good in it. Mm. So as a result of it winning um, what would be the USA Film Festival held in Park City that I think two or three years later became Sundance. Um, you know, it was funny. I was a 23-year-old and I'm sitting there after the screening. I'm having whiskey with Sidney Pollack and Roger Ebert. And oh, I have no idea what is going on. Oh, my God. And Did I you got, know of Roger Ebert? No, I had just met him. Oh, man. I just met him. And that, and awesome. that movie and did Sydney really Pollack. well at the Chicago Independent Film Festival. Or yeah. Chicago, Chicago, I should say, International Film Festival. And it had in the movie was like shot for $240,000. And I think the score cost $260,000. And it played, Jeez. and it, it 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 got a release through Sony Pictures. Uh, well, it wasn't Sony at the time, but Triumph was a division of Sony, and they took it out. It didn't do any theatrical business, but it ran on TV for a number of years. They run it on like TNT, Rebel Night, in between Rebel Without a Cause, then Purple Haze, because Rebel Without a Cause set in the fifties, Purple Haze is the sixties, and then um, I think it was Pump Up the Volume. Okay. Something like that. Yeah. So I got an agent from that, uh, APA, Ames Cushing, and uh, assigned me from um, APA uh, uh, back in the day. And Erwin um, uh, Stoff was, had started a management company, and he went on to become hugely successful with Three Arts Entertainment. And um, I booked some jobs, and I worked for quite some time, but it was still a struggle for me. By the time I got really good technique, um, it was kind of the bloom was off the rose. You know, if the business is sort of runs on infatuation, if you're the new kid on the block and you mm -hmm. score, you can really roll for a while. But yep. if you're, but if you don't score, uh, the theatrical features or the bigger, the bigger stuff, um, you, you kind of become long in the tooth, even though you're 25 or 26. Mm. So I started doing some Roger Corman movies and started, to, I'm, I'm getting to the answer to your question. Um, <laughs> I started uh, doing some Roger Corman movies where I was the lead again after doing, I did, I did, v, I did, um, I did Purple Haze and I did V. Purple Haze, I played a long haired hippie. Mm -hmm. And in um, typecasting, it, yes, there we go. <laughs> then I played a, a, a Nazi from outer space, an alien Nazi from outer space, which my mother was not proud of. She told me I'm embarrassed my son is in such a <laughs> such a program, and it turned out to be a, a huge hit for NBC and Brandon Tartikoff, and they did two miniseries. And then I did the Last Starfighter, and then I did a bunch of miniseries. But um, I mean, I have to ask you about Die Hard Two, though. Yeah, we can. Yeah. That, Die Hard Two was one of the last movies All I right. did. I I auditioned. Uh, Bill, Billy Campbell was uh, slated to play that part, and he fell out. He got a bigger job, and there was only three lines. And I went and met Rennie Harlan and Joel Silver on the set down at a power plant or a ref oil refinery down in um, in San Pedro. Yeah. And uh, I went in and auditioned for Rennie outside the trailer, and it was like two or three lines. He said he got the part. <laughs> and it ended up that year, that part, that movie was shot in 88 or 89. Uh, actually, it might have been 89, 90. Yeah. 
it was set in the snow, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. there was no snow that year. It was a drought year. Yeah. So we traveled all over the United States looking for, started in Denver. So, so they were going to shoot it in Washington? Was it Washington? They, they were originally yeah. going to shoot it in Denver. Oh, okay. Uh, well, actually don't know. Um, yeah. I know that we, the first place we went to that had snow was in Denver, Colorado. Yeah. And then they lost the snow. And then we went to, uh, I think we went to Maine. Then we went to Alpena, Michigan. Then we went to Moses Lake, Washington, towards oh, the end of that movie. And they, that the scene where Willis is having the fight, uh, the fight on the wing of the 747 mm-hmm. rolling down the runway. Yeah. They they rent it a seven forty seven. I think it was two hundred fifty thousand dollars a day. Um, <laughs> it's to, money to shoot the sequence, and there was you know six or seven inches of snow on the ground yeah. at the airport, and then it started to rain. And they could have survived with the rain, except they had painted the plane with water based paint. Okay, so the decal oh. started running. So we finished it on the soundstage in at Fox, and I had was supposed to have this whole shootout. I had three lines in the movie. I was Thompson. Um, uh, I haven't seen it for a while. Uh, my line, where you sir, going? like General Esperanza, uh, General Esperanza was playing, just came on the scope. Oh, uh, yes, yes. I actually, because I, I love the Die Hard series. So I, I, that triggers a memory well, in my head yeah, and my, I remember it. My second line yeah. is, this is Buckwheat. The clubhouse is open. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's me. I love how you still remember your oh lines. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I still remember quite a few of them. So I can still Buckwheat, remember. The clubhouse is open. <laughs> yeah. I remember I, that. I remember that. It's Tony Ganyos and I are the ones that go to the church to take it over. Yeah. And yeah. Head into the altar. And you, you tower. kill the, the old guy. Yeah. He, yeah. He shoots him and then I step into the shot and look down at him. And it's like, oh, oh, holy shit. I remember that. Yeah. But that's this, awesome. But that was him. Yeah. yeah. I'm having a fanboy this, moment right now. There he is having a so, fanboy so moment. So this is the pivot point in my career. At the end of that, scene i was supposed to have this huge shootout with bruce willis and they oh, they fitted my neck with an appliance he shoots me in the throat my throat's supposed to blow up yeah well the appliance malfunctioned and i just fell out of frame and they were so over budget they didn't bother to go do it again no. so it was just a clunky moment at the end of the movie i said this is ridiculous so that's when i started writing my own scripts and trying to do my own stuff yeah after doing all these lead roles for roger corman where you know, with Carl Franklin and other people, we were on location in the Philippines or in Peru. We got a lot of experience rewriting stuff to make it better with mm. the approval of the producers. Yeah, yeah. And so I said, I should just start making my own stuff. And then I got, an, I, I heard an idea of a true story when I was working on a movie for Roger in Peru. And that be, that movie ultimately got made. Mm-hmm. And the producer that uh, brought me in to go work for him for uh, with a producer who was making all these Jean-Claude Van Damme movies. So that's how I segued. Oh, Wicked. Nice. Wicked. But do you have any regrets about giving up your acting career? Because it seems like you loved it. Um, yeah. I mean, I look back on it, um, and I think that I really did not take advantage. I was too naive when I had the chances, and I was uh, really very immature for my age when I was in my early 20s. And, mm-hmm. I, and you know, um, and my mother wanted me to be a Supreme Court justice. You know, Peter, you got the top scores in every You still class. got time, buddy. Still you got, got time. You got the top scores in all your <laughs> classes at UCLA. You got the highest score, the third highest score in the state on calculus. What are you doing being an actor? Well, you're the one who turned me on to it. So. <laughs> your fault. Mom. Don't bring don't bring me into this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there you go. Exactly. Well, tell your mom you can always play Supreme Court justice on TV. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Write <laughs> yourself. Yeah, Write yourself well, into she's, it. She's no longer alive, but I, I thought about doing, I've done a little bit here and there on the end, but ultimately, 
you know, you're, as an actor, you're only in charge of the interpretation of your character. And mm. it's just, I've just found it more interesting creating the whole world and the process of beginning to end of making the movie, it, it, coming up with the concept, the character relationships, the, getting the structure of the script worked out, the positioning from the marketing standpoint and, and picture editorial. I just absolutely love yeah. Oh, no, I I, that, I, I, I I agree with you. Agree yeah, with you. it's it, and it's a it's a buzz kind of creating something that gets made. And you're like, oh, I did that. Yes. Yeah. And compared it's to like control. somebody somebody else like going, yeah, I think you you can come and do my project. Yeah, producing is satisfying. I, I like line producing. It's like you know summer cleaning your garage. Yeah. Right. It feels really good. You go out there and you see everything organized in the garages. Uh, but directing and acting is electrifying. As is writing. Acting's a sensual experience, electrifying. It's more sexual to use, not not literally sexual, but it's it's a physical experience. Mm. Whereas directing is electrifying, but for other reasons. Yeah, as is writing for other reasons. When you see dialogue delivered on screen, that moves an audience it's yeah. really satisfying is it uh, even more satisfying when you write something and you you interpret it this way and then they say it another way and you're like oh yes yeah. that's, that's awesome like i didn't even think of that yeah, yeah that's the exciting part the chemistry it's like putting seasoning in a meal yeah in a, in a meal you're cooking now um Peter, I know I told you this, but Daniel, remember this. Uh, on previous podcasts, mm. I've said, well, I had a friend tell me when you're writing, look for Peter, like the reptilian, uh, find what activates or or the reptilian. Rept- Can you please say it? Yes. Well, the reptilian, <laughs> I've re- lost reptilian. it now. Well, we were talking about, I mean, one of the things that's a challenge in storytelling and cinema is it's very hard to make an audience feel the way the characters feel by showing them what the character's going through. Mm. Like if if you go through your life, you can see somebody and they look like they're fine, but when, but they're really suffering inside over something. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's really hard in life to know what people are feeling, let alone to have a character on screen convey or trigger a, a reaction in an audience. So when I was talking about triggering the reptilian response yes. in the in the in the human brain, we were talking about doing thrillers or horror movies. Yes. And the movies that are really successful, you know, scare people. Yeah, they, they absolutely. Get and if you look at, you know, the James Wan pictures in the recent era or you go all the way back to Alien in the in the 70s, mm-hmm. Or Jaws, the opening of Jaws traumatizes you. Yeah. The first, you know, right? The first one, right? When the girl is killed. Yeah, 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 yeah. You are completely messed up. So anytime you see the shark again, you're like, oh. Yeah, because in the beginning, you you don't see what's going on. You just see uh, her up above. You don't see what's going on under yeah. the water. And the fact that you don't know, that's the, that's the scary part. Yeah. Well, it, it's proof that <clears throat> if you look, it, that it's off screen. The, yeah. the, the body, once you see the monster, it's yeah. less scary. Yeah, once you reveal the boogeyman. Yeah. So if you look at Alien, uh, the first one, you, you don't see the monster all that often. It's no. like a, probably under a total runtime of the audi- of the monster on screen is probably less than a minute. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I don't know, it's two seconds here. It's always a flashback. Little pop there, all that sort of stuff, yeah. So this is one of the things. And, you know, you can make somebody laugh immediately, uh, which will create empathy. You can you can build uh, attachment to a character dramatically that can tend to take a little more time um but outside and then with horror um you have to build suspense and and scare people and give them a form of ptsd and and the 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 biggest thing 
that is often overlooked, although not so much anymore. I used to say it very early on in my career because, you know, you know, music, music composition was always sort of, you know, back in the day there, were, there weren't really agents for composers. Mm. In the 70s and early 80s, that's when the first eight, like Gorfain Schwartz, I think, formed in the late 70s and early 80s. And music was something you sort of thought of after the fact. Yeah. Um, but except for movies like Easy Rider in the 60s, which were music driven, which Purple Haze that I started in was kind of a, followed the same kind of mode model. Um, but you really need great music, especially in a thriller, to trigger the Richter response to build suspense. Yes. Yeah. To that shock cut that scares people. Mm-hmm. Well, you also said something about combining genres. This is when I met Peter, like I was actually had given acting a break and I was doing more of executive producing, finding finances for a film. And so that is how I introduced myself to Peter. Yeah. And is this when um, I first met you? Or were you already well into you, No, this is this is around when I met you. Okay, as well, cool. Then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you also said and I gave you a script and you didn't like it that much. And, and you said to try to find um, a script that maybe like combines two genres successfully. Mm-hmm. And I think Jason uh, Blum, Bloom, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, yeah. Blum has found success in that horror and comedy. I mean, Shaun of the Dead, horror, comedy, and it works so well. And that was like, oh, that's what Peter was talking about. Well, there's different forms. I mean, some some movies that are mashups, uh, what's that? Um Timur McMenbatov movie that he did, Lincoln Vampire Slayer. Yes. Uh, yeah, yes. yeah. It did a couple hundred million worldwide, but it was panned for what it was. I thought it was really interesting, a piece of art. Yeah. And Tarantino does it. He's kind of mashing up movies when he's mashing up history. Oh, yeah. Right? Yes. He, he, yeah, he loved it. Like, and it, it just recent, makes yeah. for an interesting cocktail. Let's like take a margarita and mix it with a martini. That actually sounds horrible. <laughs> you can probably find, you know what I mean? So, the, the idea is you have, this is a challenge in making movies and in making art. People like what they're used to until they don't. Yeah. yeah. Right? And, until they do. They, uh, did I get that right? Yes. yes. They like what they used to until they don't. And yeah. then it's very risky to go outside the box. That's why studios are constantly looking at comps. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get this tug of war between the auteur and the journeyman director filmmaker who's yeah, going to deliver yeah. what the studio wants versus a vision right and so you'll have this tug of war in filmmaking in in, in art itself and um and that makes for that that's really what makes it interesting and also super challenging because you can you can blend genres that people don't get i mean Shaun of the dead is not a blumhouse movie no it's not but, no that was but Get out is kind yeah. of a blended type of movie yeah. right yeah. because yeah. it's really a it, it, you think it's you think it's separate wives no it's not separate wives it actually turns out to be um body snatchers with yeah. surgery mm-hmm. right with a peck and paw ending a yeah. shootout at the end yeah, yeah, right? yeah. so yeah. Um, and social commentary as well. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's set inside the, the culture of racism. Mm-hmm. So um, that obviously worked very successfully. But if you get into black comedies where, uh, like I did this black comedy with Jennifer, Jennifer Heigl, which Catherine Heigl, not Jennifer Heigl, Catherine Heigl, which I was really quite proud of. It was originally called North of Hell and it was released as Home Sweet Hell. But we made fun of her character, her public image, which had been tarnished. Ah, uh, yeah, that's cool. And her yeah, character right. uh, is the sociopathic housewife who that's wants her right. husband to kill his mistress uh, to save face for the family, and then he can't go go through with it. But she does it, and yeah. it just didn't. People didn't like it. It, it played super well. Yeah, when we test screened it. 
the guys that ran the test screening said I've ne- the movie played great. And then they looked at the scores. They weren't any good because people didn't know who to recommend it to. So it shows the perils of being so unique. Oh, yeah, they don't yeah, know yeah. who they're going to tell to go see the movie. Is that kind of similar to remember when uh, Interview with a Vampire came out and Tom Cruise played like uh, Lestat? The bad mm-hmm. vampire. And everyone was like, uh, we don't know how to feel about this. He, Tom Cruise is usually this person and now he's playing this person. And so it kind of had that mixed yeah, kind of. That's right. exactly yeah. right. That's yeah. people like what they're used to. They're going to see a Tom Cruise movie. <clears throat> I mean, if it's Meryl Streep, it's, it, from movie to movie, she's you can playing do whatever completely you want. different yeah, character. Yeah, yeah. She's been established. And that's, that's hard for people. It's hard for artists. You know, it's like Jim Carrey was a genius clown mm. actor, right? Yeah. But he wanted to do something else. It was hard for people to. And it, it takes time because you see it with, you see the evolution of Jim Carrey over the years. And like, it, it, it's, it, it kind of felt like a really slow uh, evolution. And now you can see him as like playing the the darker yeah, yeah. roles and all yeah, that yeah. sort of stuff. And he even like did little things and changed his persona out in public and all that sort of and stuff. He's a and he's fabulous artist. I mean, yeah. Liar Liar is one of the great movies. I mean, he's just hilarious. But Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, is just outrageous. Oh, Ace Ventura. Oh. He's the, Dumb you know, he's the, I'm trying to remember back in the day, um, who's the star of uh, King of Comedy with De Niro? That, that comedian? Uh, is uh, Jerry Lewis? Jerry Lewis. Yeah, yeah. So he's yeah. Jim Carrey kind of became the Jerry, Jerry Lewis, Lewis of this of time. The present day. Yeah, yeah. And then he departed from. It. He's just a, a brilliant guy, though. Mm, I mean, it's mm. so funny. He has such a dark quality about him that I actually love seeing him in drama. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now he's do, doing more of it because uh, he doesn't need to be a movie star. Yeah, he, he can do whatever he wants now. Yeah. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, how do you see the influence of streaming services affecting the, you know, theatrical now? Because it really, I, I mean, somebody mentioned to me the other day. She's like, it's like there aren't enough movies coming out. Like she went online to see at what was cinema. playing at the cinema, yeah. and she said, and everything had been the same as it was like a month ago or something. And she yeah, goes, there yeah. was nothing new. And so I, I find more and more people are staying in, um, Netflixing. Amazon Prime. Yeah, this is a transition that's been going on a long time. I saw the consequences of it uh, firsthand when you're starting to look at the revenue. Mm-hmm. And it's a completely different model for filmmakers. You know, if you go to Netflix, they they buy worldwide rights out front. And it's not a revenue-based system necessarily, right? Mm-hmm. It's sort of a it's a TV system. They have their own internal rating system that yeah. tells them what their audience is. And they don't on. tell you, do they? They don't tell you the viewers or, until a little later or something. I don't know like that. that they t- – I think they tell producers. Producers okay. get some idea. I actually don't know the answer to that question. Yeah. So the transition itself has been – I mean, a couple of things happened. I mean, obviously, widescreen TVs. Um, yeah. A huge Better impact. Systems. You yeah. can see yeah. widescreen. There's no demarcation line between – there's no distinct difference between the image you see at home than you see on screen or even on your phone if it's close enough to your face. Yeah. Because you've got a widescreen aspect ratio. That like the, like the, the, uh, the music industry, was, were the studios just not prepared with the speed at which um, online, you know, obviously piracy was the first thing that kind of happened. I don't, I don't then- think so. I think they I think they could see it on the horizon, knew it was a problem, didn't know that it would become as big of a problem. And the thing is, uh, what, else, what choice do you have? You just got to go with it. You got to sit there and see if you got to make movies for less or do big movies that are tentpole. That will get people you, into the cinema. And that's what yeah. you've seen. You've seen the, 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 the doubling down on the Avenger type movies 
Sony's going to be into their sixth or seventh Spider-Man and yeah. constantly Warner Brothers constantly going back to, um, you know, Batman. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll just be they'll just be constantly turning that stuff over. So I don't think anybody really knows how it's going to shake out. It's certainly more competitive now uh, than just when it was Netflix. And uh, we'll just see how things shake out in the next five to ten years. But it's it's a real big shock to the system to feature producers and people are doing, um, you know, trying to do more TV because there's, uh, you know, binge watching is is it's something that's thing. quite popular. So yeah. there's just an endless appetite for for limited series series. It's just um, I um I I, I sorry I'm sorry yeah. but with the number of services out there, um, it's you know competing with Netflix and you got Amazon, Netflix, Hulu, Disney Plus. Um, you know, AT and T now wants more product. Like everybody can do something. Yeah, and AMC, Facebook, YouTube, their new, their, their new streaming service. So I think it, I think it's here to stay. Yeah, it's, well, yeah. It's sort oh, of yeah. like what happened with the music business. And yeah, for, in the music business, big bands started touring to make money because yep. they couldn't sell any albums. Yeah, so yeah. and I, they I did, they I, get diddly squat from streaming. Yeah, and I don't know what I don't know what the the what's analogous in the film business. Yeah, except yeah. you got to as a producer, you got to find material, you got to package, you got to take it to Netflix if a studio passes. And yeah, I, I like there I, has to be urgency. Is you know, when I was still at Sony, Rothman would when, when he was the he was the head of the studio when I left, and he um, you know just talked about urgency. A movie has to have some urgency, and that you know, and we all know the title needs to to be the concept and have some sexiness to it. Mm, mm. I, I was just going to say, I heard the conversation of, uh, or the argument of that, you know, streaming obviously is killing cinema and things like that. But the, and then the, the counter argument to that is, well, and, and movies are just big tentpole movies and things like that. And that's the only reason people go to the cinema. But then you'd have, say, an independent film like you know, Peanut Butter Falcon, for example, mm-hmm. which is like, I haven't seen it yet, but I've heard it's, it's absolutely amazing. And it, it goes to the cinema, but no one goes and sees it. And so it's like, well, you know. Well, yeah, actually, like, that's a very good example. It, it, that that movie has done surprisingly well. Actually, yeah. it's going to oh, really? it's going to get close to twenty million. Okay, oh. and it and it started out with a low platform, did okay on its initial weekend. Then it went wide on its second weekend. I think and, uh, and reviews just, and and people. Well, it stuck around for a while. So I, it, and they made it, I think, for two million. But that, that's the the problem with the indie market is. You know, there was a huge uh, uh, abundance of product because a couple of things happened, you know, 10, 15 years ago. The costs of making movies with digital digital camera systems and electronic editorial, the cost of making a movie, a better movie came down and the barriers to entry were lower. Yeah. So mo- more movies are getting made, right? So there's a huge demand of movies. But in the last five years with streaming, there's been less interest in going out and seeing any movies. So you look at movies that do well and movies that don't do well, there's not really a correlation between how good they are. But I saw Peanut Butter Falcon and it's it's a very good movie. I I wouldn't say it's the greatest movie of all time, but it's very endearing. It's got an emotional message. Yeah. And Shia in it is, he's just a great actor. He is. He's a very good actor. And it's going to do uh, probably 20 million domestic. Yeah. Which is excellent. That's really cool. But... Do, By and large, most of them are doing what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think uh, I've heard this uh, argument before? Because there's so much content now, yeah. and so many platforms that the quality of the content 
has gone down a little because there's just so much of it. And they kind of like throw this here and throw this there and hopefully one of them will stick and stuff like that. I've heard that argument that people are kind of like, I think the acting quality in a lot of things has gone down a little and the quality in show, but there's still really good stuff out there. The acting quality or the content? Both. Okay. Yeah, I don't know if I would buy that because that's that's just too general of a statement. I think quality within an, a production company mm-hmm. might will vary year to year, but you know those some people that are, can make good movies will continue to make good movies. Yeah. There might be dilution of quality across the board because more people are entering the market. That's like, what I think the argument is. It's dilution because there's only so many actors to go around. And dilution of expertise. So not every not, actor is good. Yeah, well, I mean, or, or it could be the directing. Yeah, well, it's a combination of things, but yeah. that, that's the argument I've had. And I was just interested. But there is a, at some point, the the, the film festival biz, business was there to create that an out. avenue for independent film to find an audience. And it grew really mm. quite well in the early 2000s. But what happened is that it, now there's, you know, you have movies that are bought at Sundance and then don't perform. They spend a lot of money on them and they mm. don't perform. Or they get really good reviews and they don't perform. Or you get really great test scores and nobody wants them. It's because these independent films are not, people are not just not going to the theaters. Yeah. And um, there's no real science to it except that one of the consequences of it is that it's almost like the film fest- movies exist to support the film festival business rather yeah, than yeah. the film festival business supporting films, right? Yeah, yeah. no, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. So I have a quick question. and this Fire away, Remy. Fire. <laughs> uh, this goes back to when I was sitting in your office with a director and a producer, and I remember it so vividly because I thought it was quite funny. I had to laugh inside was that this director who was really quite relevant in his time, not too long ago, but he was quite relevant and he was pitching a film and he was talking about his previous films that had done very well. I remember you looked deadpan at him and said, yeah, I auditioned for that. (laughs) Get out of my office. I, I, I forgot, but I just loved how the tables had turned. Like you were once an actor and wanting to be in this film, you auditioned for it. And then here he is like, you know, 20 years later trying to pitch you a film. Right. Right. And uh, so how many times has that happened throughout your career? And is that a thrill? And it's a thrill. Yes. By the way, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. It just happened recently. My, My boss that I worked for from, uh, a producer I worked for from 93 to 98 before I worked at Sony. I don't know if she'll continue to make rackets. That's okay. We can. Do you want can, to let her in? Yeah, we can take a, a commercial break. Yeah, uh, commercial, break. commercial break right now. We are back. So, uh, let's continue this conversation. The conversation was it happened recently where a boss uh, that or a former producer you worked for, the tables had turned. And um, well, yes, that, I mean, that happened. I, I worked for a producer. Uh, from 93 to 98. And then uh, after working for him, I started working at Sony. And about five years later, he was reporting to me on a movie. <laughs> well, it was great. So I got to recut Evil his laugh. whole movie. But he was he was really pleased yeah, yeah. how the movie turned out. But more recently, that same boss called me up. He wanted me to produce a movie for him. And the director is Rennie Harlan, who I acted <gasps> for in Die Hard 2. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so we, we got to meet at the Soho. We met at, caught up at the Soho house not too long ago and had a really nice time. Talking about what we were going to do with the script, so we got a, we got a draft of the script in. And did you have anything to do with cliffhanger? No. Ah, uh, damn no. It. Okay, but those are nice instances <laughs> where you like the person. You like the person. Are there any instances where instances where you can just go ha 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 
fuck off. I mean. <laughs> well, not that I'd share now. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> there you go. That's going too deep from me. <laughs> okay. I have to know, what is the weirdest thing you ever got pitched? Oh, that is, that's, oh my God. So many to choose from. <laughs> no, I don't know. Nothing comes, I mean, I don't know. I have a pretty open mind when it comes to art. art. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I'm not weirded out very much. I mean, I've had some weird stuff happen as a producer and or as an executive. Such yeah. as? <laughs> well, when I was working for Moshe, I remember this, we were, we were casting one of the supporting parts. Uh, Moshe Diamant was in Europe. And we were reading actresses and putting them on tape at our office over at Columbia Pictures. And this woman, I was reading with her and standing next to the camera. And she came over and grabbed me by my neck, by the scruff <laughs> of my shirt, by my shirt, by my neck, and licked me oh. from the collarbone all the way up to my cheek. And I went, <laughs> and it smelled like coffee. And I went, what? Did she get the pot? No. <laughs> it was just too oh. weird. Oh, well, I mean, that's how Margot Robbie got uh, the pot in Wolf of Wall Street. She slapped Lee on the face. Oh, she did? Yeah, yeah. Well, during the far. yeah during the um, the audition, uh, the the audition, it got very heated because of the scene, and she just went slap, and then just oh, and put her hands over her mouth, and she's like, oh, "I'm done, I'm done, I'm done." And Leo and uh, Scorsese just started laughing, and she got the part because of that. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, she yeah. might have gotten it anyways, but yeah. I was like, I was like, I don't <laughs> know if that was the. <laughs> I'd have to, I'd have to ponder over that. I remember seeing that when you sent me the question, and I don't, I don't, I don't have anything. That, what's the weirdest thing I ever got put? There's nothing the, ever than that's been out of bounds. There's, there's people that come and pitch you movies that are super expensive indies. You know, like a. $50 million movie that there's an audience of one for, <laughs> or there's some good ideas that are very- It'll be a billionaire, pay $50 million for that ticket. Yeah, there you go. That are very poorly executed. Mm-hmm. And then there's well-written stuff that's not very commercial. So- um, How do you, so how do you uh, like decide what? <laughs> that was is, actually, I was going to, that was- yeah, How do you well, decide what- we with, go with with your colleagues. Um, I mean, it's also what you want to do. Did you like it when you read it? Mm. And then, if you liked it when you read it, is this a story you want to tell? And you go yes. And then, okay, will other people agree with you? And how do you position it in the marketplace? How do you? And then, you know, that's why it's good to have a boss. Like the last ten years, I worked for Steve Bursch, who's the head of Screen Gems now, and you know he had he had really good taste when it came to material, mm. and also was tough in terms of, you know, who's the audience, who's going to see this. So uh, you, I don't think anybody does it just alone. You know, even if the, the head of it, the studio asks the people around him, what do you yeah. think? You talk to the marketing people. You're sort of sifting the sand. So you say, can so-and-so green light a movie? And the answer is, yeah, but they don't, I don't know that they necessarily do it alone. Yeah. There's like another right? 10, but, 15. But you point. also have to refer to a foreign market, like, and how that affects yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, so it is about numbers yeah, as well. Yeah, that's true. And but the marketplace is changing a lot in terms of marketability and material. Like, you know, the US domestic market uh, is a driver of global consumption. You see movies released in the US and they'll go worldwide. You don't see movies released in Germany yeah. coming here, except maybe as an independent movie, but they yeah. don't come here. If they win awards or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah or yeah, in yeah. large quantity. So what you're now seeing, though, is you're seeing much, a lot of local language productions. Like a friend of mine, I was looking for 
a showrunner, filmmaker, someone who's talented for a TV series I've been developing with um, uh, a producer colleague of mine, uh, my former boss, one of my former bosses from Sony. And um, the, 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 an agent I met with, a manager who I've worked with in the past, uh, suggested this guy, and he's German. Mm. Right? It wouldn't necessarily have been that way 15 years ago. You'd hire a European to do your show and then think about doing the German version of your show first. Mm. Oh, that's right? And you're seeing inside the Netflix universe, you're seeing shows that they've produced for Eastern Europe doing super well in Asia or in South America. Yeah, yeah. So you're seeing – and you're seeing – Movies that, you know, don't do anywhere, don't do business anywhere, but do business in South Korea, mm. right? Like mm. the movie, one of the movies that uh, the group I was working with before I left Sony in January did a movie called Searching, which did pretty well in the U.S., but it did exceptionally well in South Korea. Oh, is that the, uh, I can't remember That's his name. Timor yeah, where, movie. Yeah, where his, his kid you think has gone missing. Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, searching. I saw that movie. So was that it was good? Really good. Yeah, it was really good. Yes, I really in, I, uh, thought it was really, really entertaining. It was very sad in the beginning. And that was a movie. That was a movie that an executive colleague of mine wanted to make. They didn't want to make it up front, and then they saw it at Sundance and bought it, and were able to do some business on it. And unfortunately, the acquisitions business converting into a revenue generating endeavor through with a you know theatrical releases can be kind of challenging. So our guys managed to 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 eke out do really quite well, but it's you know it's just gotten tighter and tighter. What was the favorite film that you? made or that you greenlit oh i don't know there you know what even the even the kind of really people would look at them and go that's awful right low budget sequel to bats i did in eastern europe for a <laughs> million nine and i was really thrilled with the structural work we, i did on the script with the writer and with the filmmakers and how we were able to make that movie interesting, even though it was what it was or is what it is. You know, it's not going to win an Oscar and ended up generating a lot of revenue. Mm. And it had some schlocky parts. <laughs> and it had some schlocky physical. Well, that's I mean, the point, though, isn't it? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Special effects. Yeah. I mean, but it was fun. And so high or low, I mean, they're all I, – I, I had a significant impact and involvement in over – uh, I think it's 120 motion pictures at Sony alone that I was the lead executive on. And a lot of them were a decent number of them. Or a few were number one hits when I was working for Clint Culpepper, but they were his movies. And uh, I had a, a, a three or four A-minus cinema score. I did three theatrical released pictures uh, when I was at stage six. And those were all A-minus cinema scores. And those were great. But the, some of the lower budget stuff, I did a uh, – Two years ago, I did a movie called Accident Man for a million seven in the UK. Mm. And it got nominated for Best Independent Film in some kind of new film festival in the UK. There were a lot of nominees. But it turned out great. Super proud of it. We did this movie, uh, 55 Steps. I mean, 55 Steps with Helena Bottom Carter didn't end up getting a theatrical release, unfortunately, because the marketplace is just so tough. Mm. Um, but she was phenomenal in the movie. Yeah. They got the best test scores we ever got in the division. So oh, that wow. was really satisfying. And, you know, there's, there's you just some you just don't movies. know. Yeah, you don't know. And you just, just don't some know. Oddball movies that are just, uh, you know, were were fun to make. I mean, well, you, was there anything that you regret not making that went on to do very well? Well, uh, only movies that we actually didn't get. We had a, I had a brief opportunity to to uh, do Get Out. I um, mean, um, Sean McKittrick called me up and said, I've got the script I want to send you. And then he never sent it to me. I said, well, what happened to get out? Well, I, I, Universal, Blumhouse wanted it. 
So we were able to do a deal immediately. And so, yeah, man. So missed out on Get Out. Yeah. But uh, in my division, the division I was working in was, I was because I hit the cord. Oh. In in my division uh, where I was working, I was doing a lot of lower budget, you know, sequels and standalone action movies. And, you know, it just uh, it was just so fortunate and grateful to have the run that I had with the uh, the 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 diversity of material I got to work on. I did comedies, I did action movies, I did horror, I did all was on all three hostile movies. I did a, a bunch of uh, sequels to Lake Placid. Hostile. Lake Placid. And the last, oh, the last <laughs> one we did down in South Africa might have been one of the better ones we had done, and that was uh, we had to do it for less and less and less, and so. Yeah, the challenge of being just as good. Uh, Peter, uh, that movie did a lot of business. Can you do it again but spend a million less? We uh, <laughs> did two World War II movies that we shot in Eastern Europe for about $3 million that turned out great. Yeah. People were just going, I'd screen them for people. Did that movie cost $20 million? I said, well, with that cast, are you sure it would have cost $20 million? No, it wouldn't have cost $20 million with that cast. But they, they, you know, the production value was great. And the stories we turned out were great. Mm. For the filmmakers. Mm. So, have you ever had uh, like big named directors coming to you, and you're like, "No, I'm not going to make that." <laughs> like, does not that where, happen? Not, or? Not, not where I was at Sony. Yeah, not where I was at Sony because I was in a semi indie division. Okay. okay, making lower budget stuff. I mean, I did uh, one of the first movies I was an executive on when I started at Sony was Greg Berlanti's only feature that he's done today called the broken hearts club and he was great oh, to work with but then he went on to have a just a stunning dc world TV, yeah, <laughs> stunning tv career and yeah, so i yeah. ran into him at the vanguard awards with his husband and he remembered me we had a lengthy conversation but he's not doing features so. yeah yeah so um uh no not not where i was working that okay. was that was the columbia business that was yeah. sony proper or tristar okay okay and yeah. my, my boss um, uh, the guy, the gentleman I was reporting to, I mean, Clint was doing movies with big, big, bigger, well, not necessarily big directors, but relatively well-established directors. And then, um, after I started report, it stopped reporting to Birch, uh, to Clint, I started reporting to Birch and then Birch started moving in to yeah. working with bigger directors. Like he, he did, um, they did Don't Breathe with Fetty Alvarez, okay. who was an up and comer, but immediately a great director. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Don't Breathe was excellent. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, but that was your division. I was. Yeah, that I was yeah. not on. That was uh, okay. my colleagues at the time. Okay. That was uh, Steve Bursch, Joe Matukowitz, and uh, Michael Helfand. Nice. And that movie was excellent. Yes, it was very good. Very oh yeah, good. It, yeah. But that that was a ma- kind of a mashup because that was really a thriller that had horror tones. Yeah, yeah. that's true. No, it absolutely yeah. did. And just definitely psychological because it's just all about just don't make a sound, you know, all that sort of stuff and things like that. So, yeah, yeah, totally. How did you determine the P&A of a film? Well, that there you go. I mean, it depends on, I mean, <laughs> the formula for that has changed a lot. I mean, the feature uh, distribution business had a more uh, sort of well-defined um, playground, I should say, or, or, or way of distributing features and then there started being cracks in the wall 10 15 years ago but you know the the things we assumed would work on the go forward were not working the way they used to work in the past so i mean it just really depends on the concept of the picture what is the audience and how do we get to that audience is it going to be through tv ads is it going to be an outdoor campaign or is it going to be through some sort of digital campaign 
a combination thereof. And, and I, I think you have to be facile. You have to be, uh, you know, aware that, you know, you have to pick a date, right? You got to figure out what date, what time of year you're going out, who you're going to be competing against. And, um, you know, what's your rating and, you know, uh, finding out, being very clear through test scores, through your recruit ratio and looking at how audiences react to your movie when you show it to them and they comment afterwards, how, uh, you know, what, what, what demographic likes this the most and, and will they talk about it after they've seen it? So there's just a lot of components that go into deciding how much to spend. And, you know, obviously on a big budget tempo movie, they'll spend a lot. And that'll be over fifty million into the you know, one hundred and fifty million on a release of a big movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, what type of do you have any particular genre that you just personally like to watch or make or make? No, mm-hmm. no. Mm-hmm. I've, I've made. I've fortunately been involved in all genres. I, I, you know, comedy is king. I love to make people laugh. I think mm-hmm. that's why you go. But also a super interesting movie. I mean, there's some. Some movies that I just find attractive and would want to go see. I remember when Apollo 13 came out, I wanted to see it. I wanted to see Hunt for Red October. These are older movies. Yeah. I wanted to see The Nun recently and saw it last year. And that was really expertly made. And, Mm. you know, I was surprised that the reviews were not better because it was scary and entertaining. Mm. Die Hard. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the first Die Hard is, you know, is archetypal. Alien and Die Hard are two, and and Jaws and. Mm Or two, like an ET, really archetypal movies. To be as good as them, you almost have to just reshoot them, right? Yeah. You see all these copycats on Die Hard, like yeah. Under Siege came out with Steven Seagal's. Yeah, there's, it's like Die Hard on a boat, you know, Die Hard on a train, yeah. Die Hard on a motorcycle, yeah, Die Hard in space. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what set Die Hard apart was the plotting and how well thought out it was. Having him be barefoot, having the villain lose oh, the detonators. Yeah having the villain purport to be a terrorist and then another terrorist and another terrorist. He just turned out to be a bank robber. But do you think, but Bruce Willis brought so much to that film. Also like his sort of um, cheeky humor. Yeah. Do you think that movie could have done as well without him at the helm? I I do actually. I do. I mean, it depends on who the, if it's Robert Downey Jr. in that part. Oh yeah. 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 Yeah, I think another actor could have brought his own panache to that part. It's just such a brilliantly well-written, you know, so McTiernan made two or three great movies in that decade. And that's one of them. Predator. The reason why I asked. Predator. Red October and, uh, and Die Hard. Die Hard. I really like Die Hard with a vengeance as well. Oh, that was actually probably my favorite Die Hard. Oh, really? Yeah. Is is I, Tim like, Oliphant is the villain? No, no that's, that's uh, Samuel that's, L. Jackson. That's, that's, oh, I haven't seen yeah. Vengeance then. Oh, really? The reason, oh, so now, the reason why I'm asking is because Back to the Future, which is probably one of my favorite films. Of course, that was redone. It, it had, oh, who was that actor who was in Mask? Um, Eric. Oh, Eric Stoltz? Yes, was, was Eric, Eric Stoltz. Stoltz. Yeah. He, they had been filming him, but he, they, I remember he got fired. Michael J. Fox was brought on. When you mm-hmm. see some of the older... Don't say fired, say replaced. They, replaced. They had artistic differences. They had artistic... <laughs> yes, sorry. <laughs> replaced. Uh-huh. But it was that when you see, but they actually have footage and it really would not have been the same movie mm. without Michael J. Fox. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah. probably. I mean, yeah. they replaced him. They, yeah. That's Bob Zemeckis yeah. in his prime. So. Yeah. That, there's also a video going around on Facebook of the entire pilot of Full House, and uh, what's his name? Uh, who plays uh, Danny? Ta- uh, John's. John no, Stamos. No, 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 not John Stamos. Um, filthy comedian. What's his name? Um, Dave. He, he plays the lead. 
father. My brain's just My brain. not working. Well, we can look it up. Yes, yes, we can. Yes, we can. Let's, um, let's anyway, of our multiple assistants. Yeah. Anyway, the original yeah. character was played by uh, I think a, a former SNL, and it just didn't work, and so they replaced, replaced him, right, and uh, put in um, the new guy, and boom, now it's it became like this massively yeah, a long. Lot to go in the time, but the whole the pilot was shot. Yeah. Yeah, they had to redo it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, this this well, this stuff happens. Yeah, I mean, I mean don't they like, do that with like, a lot with pilots anyway? Like, it's planet, like yeah. you know, like also just it's it's I call it the subjectivity bog where you get into and you're not sure you got too many different opinions and stuff's not working and until yeah. it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, and you just also look at just the process of getting movies made. I don't know. It may Is be, that a nightmare when there's be, like 50 million people not agreeing? It can be. Yeah. It can be. But also it can be helpful to get input from a lot of people at mm. once to just mm. see how it's playing. Yeah. This is the tug of war that I was talking about between the autoristic vision, like people will show up for what I discover along the way while I'm making my movie. Yeah. Or I'm making this type of movie for these people with that cast. Yeah. Right. Uh, Tarantino's the modern day auteur. So is, mm-hmm. you know, Woody Allen. Right? Yeah. These people, they, they get to make what they envision. Yeah. And yeah. people will pay for it because there's an audience. Yeah. I, I, I've heard a lot of. Uh, they have a built in audience. They're a brand themselves. Yeah. No, that's true. That's true. Like, yeah, you know, people are going to see a Tarantino film because it's a Tarantino But you film. look back at the history of Hollywood, like you see, I mean, these incredible stories. Like, I, I think it's both of these movies, but it may just be one of the two, and I may be commingling. But I read somewhere, I believe, that both French Connection was turned down twice by every studio, and so was Planet of the Apes. And Planet of the Apes mm. finally got made, and Rod Serling rewrote it over a weekend. And that's the movie you see. Oh, wow. Over a weekend. Over a weekend. Yeah, yeah oh, something God. like this. And that's, yeah, because he's a brilliant, prolific guy. And then you just see these stories about how stuff ends up getting made yeah, and making yeah. it through the, the, the green light process. Well, I, I think the pilot episode of Mad Men, the, the writer had it in his, he just carried it around in his bag for years and years and years. Yeah, it took forever. Yeah, yeah, before it got made. That kind of thing. So, by the and, way, and sometimes no is wrong. Some, but sometimes no, N O is K N O W, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold no for a good reason. Yeah. So this is this is the this is the struggle for artists is 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 knowing when no, it's time to move on from a no. Yeah. Yeah. Ignore the no. I think right? that's hard for people because they want to keep on pushing. Yeah, because yeah. they have See, that dogma. Never give up. Don't quit. But some projects just—it's just not their time to get made. Yeah. yeah. Human Centipede Three is not going to get made. Yeah. Well, like, <laughs> well, it probably has. See, it like, probably has. <laughs> there's a really great story about Francis Ford Coppola. I, I actually remembered it recently because I got to go see the uh, three-hour, the recut. It's like the three-hour and twenty Apocalypse? minutes of Apocalypse. Yeah. It's just stunning, brilliant, fantastic, and I, and um, it's funny because I my. We know that family because my sister was was a dancer and lives in San Francisco in yeah. the seventies. That's when she moved there with her dance company, and she became the Coppola's nanny. Oh wow! So we've been we're we know I know of that family. I don't know them, but there's this really funny story about Francis that he after SC Film School he was hired to write Patton. Oh. and he turned it in for Fox, and he had there there were so many disparate pieces. Uh, of dialogue or things that Patton had said in different locations in a different time in his life. 
that he couldn't possibly fit in to the script because he couldn't go to those different locations or different times. And he took those pieces and cobbled them together and put them in that monologue to open this the movie. Oh. And they said to him when he turned in, he goes, what is this? What is this? He goes, well, that's what I did. I, I took these pieces from here because they're all brilliant and they should be, they're part of his character. And I t- made an artistic decision to, to put them in one scene as a monologue to open mm. the movie. And it's prolific. You're fired. Oh, Replaced. so he's not making any money and um, he's running, uh, he's renting editorial equipment with he and his wife. So he gets a call from Fox to come down from the editing room, from one of their editing rooms that their Steenbacker cam needs to be serviced. And he goes down there and he goes, well, I don't have a serviceman. It's my business. He goes down to Fox, changes the bulb and re- readjusts the machine so that the film goes through it properly. And you notice it's a World War II movie. Oh, no. And he goes, what movie is that? They go, it's Pat. And he goes, that's funny. I wrote the script. <laughs> oh. And he leaves the And then, of course, he was doing uh, The Godfather for Paramount. They yeah. were getting ready to get rid of him, fire him off the movie. Because what is this movie with all these actors talking? Talking and, and doing nothing. And doing nothing. <laughs> and he won the Oscar for Patton, so they couldn't get rid of him. And, of course, you know, what happened with The Godfather. Oh, my man. Unbelievably it's, talented guy. Yeah, you just, you just don't know. So that's an like, auteur who didn't really have his own audience. He, he, he kind of entered big. But he has, oh, the, the French film New Wave, uh, Woody Allen – um, you know, these filmmakers that had an audience that, and Tarantino, mm-hmm. um, you know, he did Reservoir Dogs, which was a $2 million movie. Yeah. It was yeah. a hit. Right. And so. You got he, some his, damn good actors in that. Yeah. His $2 million audience, yeah, movie. because he's a great writer and he writes yeah. really good dialogue. And he, he got a lot of, you know, he got some, um, grief probably because it's, uh, it's very similar, I guess, to the Ringo Lamb movies, City on Fire. I think or he borrowed a lot from it or mm-hmm. was inspired a lot by it. But, you know, he's this talented, very talented guy who writes excellent dialogue. And he, he started small budget and was able to build because his audience grew with him. Yeah. 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 It's very true. So what are you working on now? Uh, trying to get um, – I have a bunch of scripts I really like a lot. Some I've got a really great – talk about a mashup, unique true story, haunting thriller. It's not really a haunting Haunting is the misdirect, so it's kind of throwing people off because it doesn't fit into a typical lane. Mm-hmm. Um, some TV stuff. Um, have, have uh, fortunately had the opportunity to adapt a couple of Frank Capra manuscripts into screenplays that were discovered by his family that were written by Frank in the 60s. Uh, those have been a bit of a struggle, but uh, really proud of what they are. And um, just uh, all kinds of stuff. Working on a, a low-budget Christmas movie we're going to start shooting uh, next month. Um, and I'm up for a couple of executive jobs. We'll see if that turns out and just, you know, just try busy, to busy, get busy. Some stuff set up. Yeah. Fingers in a lot of pies. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's kind of cool. I will you- say this though that I love is that when uh, you were with Sony, it's like it would take you a week or a month to text back. It's so funny. <laughs> now we, I just get a text. I was like, yeah, I love right. it. Yeah. There's, well, there's a lot. I mean, as the, you know, they had me focused on a market that was it, contracting. Mm-hmm. So I could see the number of emails I was getting was reducing. It's just you could see it coming to an end, right? So uh-huh. it's yeah. Like, but yeah, so there is a little more. It's been nice to have some. I, I was there for 20 years, and I think the link, the longest time I had off was two weeks over Christmas. Oh. And, you know, it's just you, you never 
really get a chance to recharge. So it's been really nice to have months and to hang out at the house in the afternoon. You went fishing? And, yeah. Well, I would do that anyway, but not, not... But you went to Canada just recently, didn't you? Yeah, I did. So, well, I was in Canada doing some steelhead fishing in British Columbia. And then I went to... Before that, I was salmon fishing in Anchorage. Nice. Is that primarily what you do to kind of decompress? Like, what's your, what and do you music? like to... All kinds yeah. of things. Music, uh, hiking, Yeah, see all the cooking, guitars everywhere. <laughs> yeah, hiking, camping, cooking, and... Uh, just all kinds of things, like dogs. You saw rearing dogs. puppies. Yeah. <laughs> speaking speaking of which, Gilda, who I had heard so much about, and I'm so thrilled to meet her. There's a book you maybe you've read it, but I'm going to suggest it. It's called My Lunches with Orson. Oh yeah, have I, you read it? I have not read it. I gave that to my former boss. It is read it. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's very interesting. I the reason why I got that book was I heard I heard. Um, uh, Henry Jaglum being yes. interviewed on on TV on on KCRW, and I think they played some of it. The, he recorded those lunches. Yes, and they played it, and it was really fascinating. It was, it was fascinating the way he talked about uh, Rita Hayworth, who Gilda is named, named after. after. Yeah, well, her character yes. Gilda. Yes. Gilda, and then but even when he was talking about Marilyn Monroe, and he was like, "Oh, nobody would look twice at her." And he's like, "She wasn't the bombshell and stunning like no man would man would look at her." <laughs> Right, really? as soon as she became a star, yeah, because he says I dated her, and yeah. just he has some theories on Carol Lombard. I mean, not theories. I mean, he actually said he heard this from. I mean, you have to read it, Peter. You will yeah, love no, it. No, it's, it's, it's absolutely. I have it. It's up, yeah. upstairs, and uh, I read it in a day. Yeah, and it's interesting. He's also talking about in that about needing to get on Love Boat. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I that's a right. job. Get me a job acting on Love Boat. Yeah. Exactly. And <laughs> I'm, so, I'm trying. I'm sorry. I'm tired. I'm tired of selling wine. Yeah. Well, he was. Time. Yeah, because he was going broke, or he was broke by the end of his life. Yeah. Just so I mean, sad. Really. Well, this is the thing. Is this? This is the thing. Is that everybody in the film business who has an opinion thinks they're qualified because they have an opinion. They go see him. It's like there's an old joke when I was an actor. How many actors does it take to screw in a light bulb? And they would say. 2,000. A hundred. Yeah. Yeah. One to screw it in and 99 Nine to go. To say, I could have done can, a better job. Uh, no, yeah, that's yeah. awesome. <laughs> I can do that. But yeah, people yeah, go yeah. and see a movie. They see a movie by Francis, a brilliant filmmaker, and they go, I can do that. You know, Frank Capra, towards the end of his life, it wasn't like people were hiring him for him to make their movie. They were hiring him to direct themselves. Yes, I'm so-and-so, and yes, Frank Capra is an appropriate director to work with me, right? This is how they see themselves. Oh, yeah. Delusion. But, yeah. Well, and sometimes it's not, but, so, mm. but well, the that's, fact that's, of the matter is, is like you get past your prime, and there's a whole other crop of people coming along. So Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, that goes along with the whole, uh, I think, dilution. Like everybody now, you know, now I feel like so, so much. Like, yeah, the barriers to entry are so low. There's a lot of capital out there that you can go make a good movie for, you know, under a million dollars. Yeah. 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 Um, and also like they're finding people off of social media because they have lots of followers. Or that. I know I've, I've heard a lot of stories about that. And then when they act, they're like, mm. Well, they, they don't know what they're doing, what's going on. And they're surprised by that, which is, you know, doesn't surprise me, but um, yeah. yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> there you go. So, Anna, like, to, 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 let's cap it off. Any yeah. any advice yeah, you exactly. want to give um, us? Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> well, any, us and anybody else. Um, anybody, to any buddings, writer, actor, screenwriter, um, agent, wannabe agent, anything. Well, those are all different categories. I'd say the filmmakers or producers, I would say, you know, a lot of producers come around, they've they got 
two or three scripts they love, mm-hmm. and they they work on those. They're, I'm trying to get this made. I'm trying to get. And they're working on getting it made over two or three years. You need more than two or three. Anybody who's serious about producing, they probably need to have 50 projects that they really like. Mm. And at any given time, they're nursing along 10 of them. And they need to be stacked in genres. You don't want to just have one horror, one drama, one comedy, one sci-fi. You need like 10 of each. And they all need to have good hooks. The title needs to be hooky, right? Alien, you know what it is. Jaws, you know what Mm. it is. E.T., you know what it is, right? Back to the Future. Back to the Future. Yeah. You know, the concept is the title. It cuts through its clarity. And you got to know what the tagline is. I love to use this example because when I was at Sony, we, we acquired Insidious. And the tagline was that they came up with, it's not the house that's haunted, it's your son. So there was familiarity to yeah. it, but created curiosity. Oh, I've seen a haunted house movie. What does haunted son mean? What does uh, that yeah, mean? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I love that tagline. It's not a possession, but if you look at Oculus, which I, I think I never saw, the tagline was, it sees what you see. So what is it? Is it a computer? Is it an mm. alien? Is it a devil? What is that movie? Yeah, Oculus, yeah. it sees what you see. So you're just assuming you don't know what it is, right? There's not a handlebar to capture your imagination and get you interested Mm. in it. So I think the thing is this, obviously, never give up. You have to really be attuned to what no means. You can't take rejection personally. You got to get your ego out of it. Because anytime you're bringing material to somebody, their filmmaker and them is going to have an opinion. So you kind of got to go with the flow, even if you know they're wrong, right? And then if you get a no, you got to figure out, you got to know, you got to, if you get an N-O, you got to K-N-O-W, really drill down on what the no is. Maybe it's just not the time. Maybe you just need a better filmmaker. I mean, a lot of people, they, the script is a blueprint for a movie and they need the filmmaker in the, in the room to explain to them how they're going to shoot it and explain to them the nuance, what the movie will look like, not just how the script will read. Mm Mm-hmm. I love it. That's interesting. I Dan, anything? It. No. I, I, also, I, no movies worse should be worse than their music. It's better to make less sense than lame sense. I oh, love there we go. That. That, that's that's a podcast tagline. Actually, <laughs> yes, it is. Better to make less sense than lame sense, and no movie should be worse than its music. Boom. There we go. There, there we go. go. Love Boom. it. Love it. Peter, on that, thank you yeah. so much because I know you're very busy. No, it's fun. Yeah. I uh, just... It's not that busy on a Saturday. It's okay. I got some people coming over to see the puppy, though. Uh-huh. Well, that's so busy. That's busy that's enough. Busy. That's the busy enough. The little puppy. Yeah. Well, they all are. Yeah. Yeah. They all are, yes. But... <laughs> that one's a lump bug. Yes. Totally. really a lot of fun. Thank awesome. You Peter, thank you so much, man. It's been great to have you on the show. Thanks, buddy. Thank Cheers, you. man. Bye. Bye.